0: Girls5eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Okay, round two.
1: Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No process over permitted by law. 18+ terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 242nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the biggest movie stars of the past 25 years, and an Oscar-winning actor as well. Famous for his work in a wide variety of films, including 1993's Dazed and Confused, 1996's Lone Star and A Time to Kill, 1997's Contact and Amistad, 1999's TV, 2001's The Wedding Planner, 2003's How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days... 2006's Failure to Launch, 2011's The Lincoln Lawyer, Bernie, and Killer Joe, 2012's Mud, Magic Mike, and The Paperboy, 2013's Dallas Buyers Club, 2014's Interstellar and The Wolf of Wall Street, 2016's Gold, and most recently, 2018's White Boy Rick, a film in which McConaughey plays a single father trying his best to raise his kids in 1980's Detroit. The film, which is based on a true story, had its first screenings at September's Telluride and Toronto Film Festivals en route to being released by Sony on September 14th. And no aspect of it has been more heralded by critics and audiences than McConaughey's supporting turn. Over the course of an in-depth conversation at the Fairmont Miramar Hotel and Bungalows in Santa Monica, the 48-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, including how he was discovered in a hotel bar in Austin, and then acquired his catchphrase, all right, all right, all right, and his philosophy, just keep living, on the set of his first movie, Dazed and Confused, what led to his first leading role in A Time to Kill, which literally turned him into a movie star overnight, how he then became someone best known for rom-coms and for paparazzi photos of him running shirtless on beaches, and why he decided to do something about it that ultimately led to one of the most remarkable career reboots in Hollywood history, also known as The McConaissance, which included a Best Actor Oscar win for Dallas Buyers Club and a Best Actor in a Drama Series Emmy nomination for the groundbreaking first installment of True Detective, both in 2014. What more recently motivated him as someone with a spot firmly on Hollywood's A-list to take on a supporting part in White Boy Rick, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Matthew, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born
1: and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Uvalde, Texas. When I was born, my dad ran a Texaco station. My mom was a teacher. He went on to go into the piping coupling business. My mom was a teacher for 38 years. And while we're on the basics, I just want to say today is young. Yes. Yes. And it's about 545, and you're supposed to be fasting all That's day. That's Is that correct? That's true. How's that going?
0: Well, it's gone well up until about a few minutes ago, but can we, I'm going to break my fast with you. Will you have a mint? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat So I want to ask you about the, the house you grew up in, because from prepping for this, it sounds like very loving home, but also tranquil would not be the first word. It sound, No. Just, uh, your parents sounds like married three times, divorced twice. Yes. You've said there would be all out. Fights that would end on the kitchen floor in, mm. in, in a loving way. Yes. How do you think all of this shaped you? You were one of three?
1: One of three. Yeah. Uh, and look, my two older brothers you know, were probably witnessed more of that than I did. How did it shape me? Look, I mean, there was one rule in our family. And one thing that my parents made sure by their actions that all three of their children my two brothers and myself knew. We knew we were loved. We heard it many times. I, I, I love you but I don't like you right now. You know, there were times you got in trouble or didn't follow a rule. And that was the, that was it. So there was never a question, like if we were loved Mm -hmm. and you know, that's been something that that any parent can take into their parenting skills. If you, if that's all you can do, that's a lot of it right Right. there. That's a big majority. Now, before we get to this role where love was not enough, with a Rick Hershey senior, that was one of the rules in my family is we love you. There's times we may not like you, but we love you. Also drama. There was something to be taken care of. You'd never were allowed to go to sleep holding a grudge mm-hmm. in our family. My mom and dad didn't do it with each other and they didn't do it with us. It didn't matter if you were in the fifth grade and this conversation was going to go on until five in the morning or until it's time to go to school. Mm-hmm. You stayed up and you had it out until you both said, I got it. I love you. Hug it out. Boom. We'll never speak of it again. So, yeah, it was, it was wild, but there was always love in the household.
0: Yeah. Was one instance of tough love when you learned that you would not, even if you felt like being
1: Matt instead of Matthew, you were going to be Matthew? Yeah, that was on the kindergarten <laughs> playground. And actually, my mother, I believe, was my teacher at that time. And my buddy, John Griffith, comes in to say, hey, yeah, it's the recess. And he says, hey, Matt, let's go play in the monkey bars. I said, sure. And I got up and I'm running out there, jogging out to the monkey bars. And I feel this hand on my left shoulder, (laughs) boom, pulls me back, slams me on the ground. I look up, it's my mother standing over me. And she's like, what's your name? I said, Matthew. She goes, that's right. Don't you ever answer to Matt again? And I was like, yeah, okay, mom. Why was that so important to her? She said, I named you that for a reason. It's from the Bible. Matthew, you're not Matt. It may have been a haphazard sort of short version of a nickname Mm -hmm. that trailed me, but never for more than once. I mean, people to this day, they call me Matt. I know they don't know me very well.
0: Right? You said, quote, to understand me, you need to understand Texan logic, close quote. What does that mean?
1: Oh, geez. What does that
0: mean? Something about just the fact that you being from Texas, you have certain traits or
1: identity values maybe. Yeah. You know, I get asked that question all the time. What's it mean to be a Texan? I, it's hard to put a blanket statement on that for me. Being a Texan. All right, so you have reasons for doing something well and you have re- consequences for doing something not so well and that may start with if you're a believer under god then say you goes to your country because you're an american and then it goes to usually your family name because you're mcconaughey because you're a feinberg well in texas there's a fourth one in there between country and family right that you get kudos and attaboys for for doing well because you're a texan and there are certain maybe consequences for not doing something well because that's not Texan. that was that was the sort of insinuation and a bit of an understanding uh and and, and a meter uh right. growing up yeah.
0: so you graduated from high school 88 head off to university of texas at austin first went away to australia as an exchange student that's why there was okay so a gap year i've read that when you did go off to college though you were originally contemplating a career in law instead of what ended up being radio, television, film major. Yep. I heard about some phone conversations with a buddy and then also a book that kind of
1: convinced you you got to reconsider. Yeah, well, it was coming on towards the end of my sophomore year, which is about that time where, you know, the first freshman, sophomore, you can kind of take what you want. The liberal arts, your credits are going to apply. But junior and senior year, you have to start focusing on what this is going to be, because if you change your major, you may just lose credits that you spent time in class with. So I was a, I was losing a little bit of sleep with the idea of going to law school, mainly because you know, there I was, 21, if I graduate, then I've got four years of law school, and then I'm like 28, 29, 30 before I'm able to practice mm-hmm. or put a mark on society in my own career. And I didn't like, I wasn't happy with the idea of going, wait, I just want to go straight education for all of my 20s. Right. So I had a friend, Rob Binler, who was at NYU, who sort of is the guy who introduced me to watching films in high school, in my senior year. And I started getting interested. I was right. I was keeping a diary. I was I was I was writing short stories and sending them. And he was my one friend that would read them and write back and say, "Hey, this is cool. This is that. And then the other." And he sort of gave me the confidence to say, "You know, why don't you go into the storytelling?" His idea actually was, "You ought to look into acting." Mm-hmm. But that was something that I was like, no, 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 That's not, that, that's not. It seems impossible. That's, it's too ethereal. It's, there's not. I, I, I don't see a way. I couldn't even kind of think about it. Now, mind you, looking back, when I look back at my old diaries, I was thinking about it back then, but I couldn't even admit it. It wasn't even in the vernacular of my dreams. But I look back at my old diaries and I could see it in between the lines, <laughs> you know. So what did I do? I went to film school before deciding that mm-hmm. to go to film school. I did on the day of my sophomore exams, I was at, at a friend's house behind our fraternity house and I had three hours before my test and I was a study bug. I was at like a 3.82 GPA. Wow. For whatever reason this day, I was like, I opened my books, looked at them, I was like, I know all this and mm-hmm. I shut it. And I looked down there's film the TV and there's ESPN on and I'll watch, I'll watch the strongest man competition of <laughs> it's sports, right? I flipped through, right. uninterested, turn the TV off. right? I looked down, stack of magazines. There's Sports Illustrated and there's Playboys. So sports and, <laughs> and, and women oh, my, things. I was like, yeah. oh, these are you. And I was just nah, mm-hmm. not interested. Well, I kept digging through that stack of magazines. And about seven magazines deep, there was this white paperback cover book with red lettering. It so said, the greatest salesman in the world. And I remember grabbing it, and picking it up. And as I brought it to myself, I said to myself, who is that? Mm-hmm. And I sat down and I, and I read the, the beginning. Lost track of time got to the first scroll where it sets you off on this journey of following these 10 scrolls and looked up and it was 15 minutes before my class, wow. before my exam. So I asked my buddy, woke him up, shook him and said, Hey, can I borrow this book? He goes, no, you can't borrow it. You can have it. Mm-hmm. Always the person who gave it to me. I said, I would pass that on. So I started that book that night. It was something that found me and it was something that was original. So not something that a teacher said, you must read this. And it found me and it spoke to me and right. I mean, within I think that next couple of weeks, I got up the courage to say I want to go to film school to myself and then make that call to my parents. Because what the book was saying is get going with what you really want to be doing, basically, or what? It's 10 scrolls, a little bit of that, you know, uh, stuff you already know that you learned in kindergarten, but maybe you learned worse as you got older and forgot. And so the the first scroll is about creating good habits and becoming... A slave to your good habits. Now it takes 30 days to get past that scroll into the next one. And the next one is Greeting the Day with Love in Your Heart. And then it goes into ones about persistence and uh, uh, all, all kinds of wonderful things. And it's a 10-month read. But it just, I had some ownership of. It was the first thing that I found that spoke to me mm-hmm. that I felt like I had ownership of. I didn't know anyone else who had the book. No one had given me the book. Like I said, no one had told me you need to read the book. And it was a bit of, I, it, whether I knew it or not, it felt somewhat, of uh, some sort of divine intervention yeah. for me. And it gave me the courage and ownership just to ask myself, what is it you want to do? So I said, I want to go, at least I don't want to go into the storytelling business and, and try to tell stories, by, again, behind the camera. But I remember that call to my, to my mom and dad, which I was very nervous about because they were funding my education. And to tell them I wanted to go to film school, I did not think it was going to go over well. It had always been, Matthew's going to go to law school. That's something we can start. He can become really good at it. He'll be good at it. He'll work his way up. But then, this idea of going to film school what is this? Storytelling business? What? We do where you're good at that around the table. What is it? As, as a career? As a job? Well, when I asked uh, and, I, and I brought it up to my parents, I remember very clearly my dad said, Is that what you want to do? And I said, Yes, sir. And I remember it was about a four second pause. Well, don't half ass it. <laughs> and I remember when I started crying, I was so happy and that he had, he loved that I had come and sort of was taking a, my first steps into my own path. That was never something that, that, that we had planned on. And I went to film school. And so
0: what happened there though, that gave you the confidence to go on the other side of the camera?
1: Well, around this, so that was my junior year. We would break up into, you know, in film school, we, we would break up into groups of four. Someone would be the DP, someone would be the AD, someone would be the actor, someone would be the director. And you'd swap and you'd switch and you'd switch. So I I enjoyed being in front of the camera in the group of four. And then I noticed when I was directing, a lot of times I was hopping over in front of the camera to show and tell. Mm-hmm. And in film class, other groups started wanting me to come in and also do in front of the camera work. And I was enjoying it and felt like I had instincts. for it. felt like I was communicating probably better in front of it than even behind it. And then I... Uh, was in the right bar, right time, and a story that you probably know where I met a casting director, Don Phillips. Can we just set the scene a little more first? So basically, this is now junior year, right? This is now, that was junior year. Now, this, where I think you're going, comes up in the summer between junior and Summer between,
0: so it's you and your girlfriend at the time. Mm -hmm. You end up at the Hyatt Hotel, top of the Hyatt Hotel. Top of the Hyatt Hotel. So just also, though, in terms of what's going on in your life at that point, you've now been acting a little bit outside of school as well. So you've got an agent, yep. you're bringing a pager and stuff to yeah, class in case there's auditions. Yeah. Yeah. So please take the story from there. Cause this, yeah, you come into the bar with your girlfriend.
1: Well, and yeah, and I am, I am starting to make a little bit of income trying to get an acting job here and there. Meaning my first job, I was, a, I got, I got, I remember $300 for a hand model. And my agent <laughs> said, we'll pay for you to get a manicure. Right. And I remember, that's why I quit biting my nails. Because, of- because there's a $300. She said, if you grow your nails, that's in two weeks. That's and nice and I had always chewed my nails yeah. until then. <laughs> Vanity and a little commerce <laughs> right, got me to quit right, chewing my nails. Right. Then I think I'd done an Unsolved Mysteries episode for a day. I was trying. I would go. I would have a pager on and get a call. And I'd run, just drive to San Antonio two hours away <laughs> to go try out for a, a, a music video or something. Mm-hmm. So I was dabbling in it. But I was still in film school and really enjoying the film school. So I go into a bar top of the highest. The reason I go in that bar is because one of the bartender was a guy who was in film class with me right. and he'd give me free drinks. Right? <laughs> so I go in with my girlfriend, and as we're going, he he says, Hey buddy, we have and I get a drink, and he goes, You know, guy at the end of the bar is in town producing a film. And I immediately went down and introduced myself. Cut to four hours later. We're having a hell of a time and we get kicked out <laughs> of So said Bar. Right. And on the way home in the taxi, uh, he says, You ever done any acting? Great casting actor Don Phillips. He cast right. Fast Times, Ridgemont High, and kind of found and discovered a lot of people and also did a lot of producing with Art Linton. And he said, well, a little bit of this And He goes, well, you know what? You, you, you might be right for this part in this movie. It's this guy. He's been out of high school a little while, but he's still hanging around the high school. His name's Wooderson. Come to this address, pick it up, and I'll have a script for you. Well, this was already like three in the morning, so I got <laughs> up at seven, right. went over, picked up that script that had three lines in it. It was the role of Wooderson in the script title, Dazed and Confused. Just to remind you, in case anybody's listening who hasn't had the good fortune of seeing this,
0: high school graduate who sticks around even after he's, he's gone because he loves that he gets older, but the girls stay the same age.
1: Oh, <laughs> one of the great lines of all time. Right, I've always said right. this. That's just certain, and I've still to this day, certain characters will have what I call a launch pad line. Mm-hmm. Now, of, of those three lines that I had written for that character, and I you know, obviously got the part, mm-hmm. One of them was they're hanging out. He and his—he's older. He's hanging out with his senior buddy outside of the pool hall. A girl walks by, he checks her out, and the guy tells him, "Hey, man, you got—you're gonna have to cut that out. You're gonna go to jail, Woodman. And Wooderson steps forward and says, "No, man. That's what I love about those high school girls. I get older, but they stay the same age." Now, <laughs> that line—I yeah. just immediately yeah. went, "Who is that?" Right. right. If that person—if that line is not an attitude. Not a joke, but a real guy who thinks he's got it figured out. There's a book on that guy. Really? There's an encyclopedia yeah. and on it that guy. Call to mind somebody in your own life. Well, yeah, called to mind who I thought my older brother was when I was 10, 11, and he was 17. And to this day, he's like, thanks, man. I go, No, it wasn't who you were. It's who I thought you were through my romanticized right. eyes of being your younger brother, and you were my hero. And when I saw you. In the smoking section that one time, you looked eight feet tall. The way you were leaning, the silhouette of you leaning against the wall in the shade, you were the coolest thing in the world. When you let me drive your Z28, it was the fastest car (laughs) in the world. The Alpine system and the Concord speakers and the Tancurda Equalizer was the best sound at that time when I was 11 than any sound I've ever heard. It's never gotten better than to my 11-year-old ears. So it was often an impression of who I thought he was. And so with all this in mind, you go in
0: there first day meeting Richard Linklater and you believe
1: you're only going to have one day, three lines, right? The first day was not even, it was before I was ever supposed to work. I was called in for what we call a, a makeup wardrobe test. So that usually happens on a set where they're shooting, but so said, actor like myself shows up, goes to the do makeup and wardrobe and the director between takes will come over and just have a glance and go, yeah, I approve or Hey, try this and this and this. And that's it. Good night. Well, he came over, and somebody's like, oh, this is great. This is Wooderson. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, hey, man, you know, Wooderson's a guy who's probably been with the typical girls in the, in the school, the cheerleader most those poppers. Do you think he'd have any interest in, interest in the, the, the red-headed intellectual? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, Marissa Rubisi's playing the role over here, and she's sitting over in the drive-thru, and the top-notch burger joint. You think maybe you pull up and try to pick her up? With I, no assignments. Nothing, nothing, no assignment. Yeah. This has all come off the cuff right there. And I right. go, I remember I said, give me 30 minutes. Yeah. And I took a walk with myself and I started going through the who am I? Mm-hmm. Who's my guy? You know, what do I know? What's happening later on tonight? Where am I from? what to, what to who's in the car with me? Da-da. And I came back and said, let's shoot it. He goes, okay. So there was my car and hopped in and we shot the scene. And from that came a trademark. <laughs> yeah. First lines. First words right. I ever said on screen. And I'll wait to give them to you because i give you the story that leads up to Please. them. It's a beauty. So I get in my 1970 Chevelle, Wooderson's 1970 Chevelle. And I'm about to shoot my first scene ever. There's nothing scripted. And I'm feeling a little anxious, obviously. <laughs> but I'm going, so I'm going through my head, Wooderson, who am I? Who am I? And I go, what am I about? And as I'm sitting there, I'm going, okay, I'm about my car. I go, well, here I am. I'm in my 1970 Chevelle. There's one. And I said, I'm about... I'm about getting high. I said, well, dude, Slater, the, the, the village stoner is riding shotgun. He's always got a doobie rolled up. There's two. And I said, I'm about rock and roll. And I said, well, I got Ted Nugent's Stranglehold in the eight track right now. I'm jamming to, there's three. Right. And I heard action. And I looked up and there was Marissa Rabisi in the car, the redhead intellectual that I was going to pick up. And I go, and I'm about chicks. Wooderson's about chicks. And in my head, I'm saying this. I go, well, I got three out of four. And as I pulled away, I said, all right, all right, all right. (laughs) And that was where that was where that. And uh, 25 years later,
0: you'll never get away from it. There was three
1: affirmations. And, you know, I get asked all the time, did you get tired of people saying that? I was like, not really, because now, you know, the origin story, I just started. That was the first thing I said. And it's actually off, off camera where Wooderson says it. It's in the middle of the movie, but that was the first scene I'd ever been in and the first words I ever That's said unbelievable. on film. Unbelievable. And so there I am in my, on my first night working, and what I didn't know was even, it would even become a hobby. And here I am 26 years later, and it's That's a career. A, yeah, unbelievable.
0: Five days into the production, I think, this is now August 92. Out of the blue, something very tragic happened. Yep. Your father suddenly passed away. And I just wonder if you can share what happened and just how this loss shaped who you've become since, because what I, from what I've been able to gather, it
1: really did fundamentally change the way you approach life. Yeah. I mean, so five days in after that first night of shooting, all right, all right, all right. So Rick, the director invites me back the next night, invites me back the next night. And so suddenly I'm sort of getting written into the movie Mm -hmm. by our director, Richard Linklater, and all the cast who I'm in the middle of the scene and they're lobbing me lines and I'm improvising. We're setting up scenarios and we're just, hey, say what you would. So we're five nights in. I'm having a great time. People are telling me, hey, you're pretty good at this. I'm going to come back tomorrow night. I'm like, hell yeah, I want to come back tomorrow night, (laughs) man. This is fun. And I get a call so I got home from work one night that my father passed away. So I immediately got in the car, drove back to Houston, which was about three and a half hours away. My mom and brothers were still there and everyone was still up. And we stayed up all night and into the next day. And I think the day after that, we had a wake. And so that happens. Everything else in life's on hold. And I really wasn't even thinking about going back. But they grabbed me after a couple of days and said, go, no, go back. They, they go back and you're, you're, you're doing this. They could tell I was, they had talked to them on the phone over those five days. You know, they could tell how excited I was. And they were like, no, dad would want you to go back. There's really nothing you can do here right now. We're here with mom. Mom's like, go, go, go back, get back and go get back into it. And I remember going back and I was, I was, you know, I, I don't know how long it was. I think it was a f- three, four, five, six, seven, eight days. And anyway, I went back to work one night and I'd been trying to process what, what it all meant. Losing your father. Anyone who's lost a father, it's a, really, a coming-of-age day. You sober up. I remember the world became flat, meaning certain things that I maybe condescended and patronized and looked down upon, they rose up to eye level. And then certain things that I was maybe mortally having too much reverence for on earth, Lowered down to eye level. So the world was flat. It was a very courageous and sobering feeling. And also I was going through, Well, how do I, you know, the body of my father's gone, but how do I keep alive his spirit and the incentive of the things he taught me and that things that I tried to live by you know that he's no longer here. How do I keep that alive? How do I keep him a verb basically instead of feeling like, okay, he's gone. So everything that he was about to me is gone. And I remember showing up on the, it was a football field scene, and I, and, and I was spending some time with my, myself walking around and Link Letter, who, who and I, you know, we started to get to know each other by that time, had come up and we were talking about dad moving on and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm just kind of trying to work on what it's all about, you know, what, how I can get something from it and not, not, and not really have to say goodbye. And I said, yeah, I think it's about just, he just gotta keep living, man, and keep, I'll, I'll keep his spirit alive. I remember Rick we were walking around the football field and he was, you know, in Rick's way, sort of not a man of many words, very compassionate at a time. Like I uh, had a good guy too to talk to. He was like, Yeah, yeah, man, that's that's good. he saw he saw that I reckon I realized something that was a proponent from the loss of my father. And that night on the football field, there was a scene where Randall Pink Floyd's like I don't know if I want to sign this drug deal or not, and I remember and just again improvisation just came out and my mind I said, "Well, I don't care. Whatever you do, you just got to keep living, man." <laughs> and that became something that, you know, and I do this from I do this from time to time when I'll I'll come up with something or something will come to me that seems like oh this could be this is a life approach. I'll take it and test it. Let's see if it can hold up to real life. Hey. Let's see if it can hold up to different scenarios in life. Right. So it started off being about keeping my father's spirit alive in me. And then it became like, okay, every decision, if I didn't know what to do, I'd say, well, what's the just keep living decision. And it's never steered me wrong. No, it became your production company. And I put you know, it every, everywhere. Of, yeah. I couldn't find something where it didn't apply. <laughs> you know, I was like, it kind of applies to everything. And the cool thing about it is it's open to be stolen. Any Anybody can grab it and it's something different for them. No, I think it's beautiful. and And I guess in the literal sense, the way you, you kept living
0: was you now have this movie's done you are somebody that people are now paying a little more attention to and I guess a year after that you're now in LA moved to LA right and almost immediately signed with William Morris it's a big deal big agency and first two auditions if this is true it's pretty amazing yeah Angels in the Outfield which whole generation grew up on you're if they need a reminder you're i, I think ben right, williams ben williams but i think was it right field or center field you get kind I of helped by the angels i think i'm i'm
1: a center or right i'm so, not yeah, sure but i, can, I lifted by I'm the angels fly.
0: so that was that and then right after that herbert ross for boys on, on the, the side. side and so it's coming along and then i see you know lone star with john sales yep. you're working with auteurs but it seems like clearly the the star making role is a time to kill yes 96 joel schumacher again, just to remind people, Southern lawyer defending a black man who murdered the two white rednecks who murdered his daughter. Yes. Why did Schumacher bet on you even when a lot of people were telling him not to? They
1: wanted a name. Well, and this is also something that we'll circle back when we get to the the present movie, White Poor Rick. So I had gone in, there was a role that Keeper Sutherland played of one of those rednecks clan members in the film. And that was the role that I went to go talk to Joel Schumacher about on the Warner Brother lot, that was the role that he was interested in me about. Well, I got a hold of the book, read as quick as I could, and read the script, and I was like, "Well, who's this Jake Braganz guy? That's 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 the guy I want right there." So I had it, I had it planned. I said, "In this meeting, I'm going to find the right spot, and I'm going to get that out there to him, let him know." So I remember, I remember, I go in, I was smoking cigarettes at the time, I had a sleeveless John Mellencamp T-shirt on. And we go through and we're talking about the script and the other role. And "Can he goes, Oh, you'll be great at it. And, dah, dah, dah. and I remember going and leaning back and I lit a cigarette. And I said, So who's playing the uh, lead role of Jake McGann's? And he goes, I don't know. Who do you think should? And I remember <laughs> I pulled the cigarette out, I took a drag. <laughs> I think I should. And he goes, Ah, <laughs> that's a great idea, but it's never going to happen. <laughs> And we laughed and everything, right. but I got a call from him about, I don't know, maybe three weeks, a month later. And look, I don't know which of these stories are hundred percent true, mm-hmm. but there was, I, I do always like going back and breaking down the anatomy of how something happens because yeah. certain dots were being connected to where I was getting fortunate, lucky, whatever that helped this opportunity of me at least bringing it up and planting it in Joe Schumacher's head. I believe at the time, I know they had already had Sandra Bullock cast as Roark, and Samuel Jackson, I think, is Carly Haley. Now, the writer of the book, Grisham, had casting approval over the Samuel Jackson role and the Jake Brigant's role uh-huh. that was still open, right. and they hadn't found their Jake Brigant. I had heard something like they were wanting to go to Costner, but because he was older, it wouldn't really work to say, wait a minute, uh, how is he not a, is he a good lawyer if he's not a successful lawyer yet? So right. we need someone younger, because this will be a big break of a case. And I believe that at that time, Sandra Bullock had While You Were Sleeping open, and it opened big. Remember, it opened like a 17 or something. So all of a sudden, over a weekend, she became a green light actress, if I'm remembering correctly. Sounds right. Which allowed, I think, a studio to say, oh, we've got a little more leverage already cast. Maybe we could entertain going with an unknown or someone who's not as well known. So to whatever extent that's all exactly true, I did get a call to come into Los Angeles, and and I think it was Mother's Day. I had a a screen test in Fairfax, not at a studio. And I remember Joel telling me, it's not at a studio, and it was on a Sunday. He said, we're not doing a studio, and we're doing it on a Sunday because even if you do great, this is such a long shot. I don't want it to go on your record that you came and didn't get it in case you really do it because this is a real long shot. I just want to try it. And I went in and we were do we practice the closing argument and I remember I did it with the you know sort of on script twice and it was okay and then he goes drop the script he goes now do it how you would do it and I'm defending I'm talking to this jury about what would you do obviously the title a time to kill you know two men rape and murder your daughter if there was a time to kill this would be one so i I, I did it as I would have. I use non-lawyer speak, yeah. but I, I said things that you could not say in court. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was very NC-17, right. but it was, it was vivid right. and it was, it was, the details were, were gross and it was sickening and it upset my stomach and it upset me and it got me to a place. Anyway, after I did it, Joel's like, that's it. Got it. Thank you. And he wanted to see that I could get to, I guess he wanted to see that I could get to certain emotions that he, and I said, Okay. Thanks, because you did great. You know, let you know, like I said, long shot, but let you know. The call came, I was on the set of Lone Star. Right. In the desert and Piedras Negras, just north of the, the border. And I got a call from Schumacher and John Grisham. It was like late. I think it was one in the morning or something. And said, would you like to be Jake Brigance <laughs> And I think I said a few other expletives. <laughs> said, followed by a, a yes. That's amazing. And went running off through the desert, and that's where that came from. Amazing. And, and the film
0: obviously did very well. And I wonder from your perspective if you can compare what your life was like going into that opening weekend versus coming out of it and just how you handled the
1: the change. Yeah, so look, there was anticipation that it was going to work. You know, it's knows, hey, you know, word had gotten around. This movie looks good and this young guy, Matthew McConaughey, is really good in it, da-da-da. And, you know, magazines were already sort of, we'd already went gone and shot covers yeah. and things like that. But I do remember... The best example I can give you is the Friday before the opening, the Friday afternoon before it opened that night or the Friday morning, I was walking down the promenade in Santa Monica. So, say 400 people there. Three, four, or five were looking at me. 395 were not. Mm-hmm. And those three, four, five, maybe one had heard of me, maybe a couple of girls thought I was cute and that <laughs> was whatever. And, right. you know, right. Well, that Monday after it opened, I went down the same walk and the whole thing had inverted. 395 were looking at me and five weren't. And so it just, it just flipped. And all of a sudden the world was a mirror. Pat
0: Kingsley, who I think was she now your publicist at that point, she's legendary publicist. And she was saying, she gave an interview at the time to the LA times that I came across. She said, quote, no one I've handled. And she had handled a lot of people has struck it this big, this fast, close quote. So my question to you is, that is a, it's gotta be, I mean, now you're used to it.
1: And I imagine it's 20, something years later, yeah.
0: but as it's happening, how did you digest that? Yeah.
1: Well, I sure wanted more hours in the day. Yeah. You know, in the same way that the world was a mirror to me, the work being offered was a mirror, you know, within a weekend. Remember at that point, I'm like, I just want to work. And so if there's a hundred scripts I'll do. I mean, I'm probably going to say yes to a hundred <laughs> of those. Right. Well, but only two are being offered come Monday. And I'm still in the mindset of I'll do any of those right. 98 are off. Right. 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 So, whoa. And I remember going, I need more, t- I, need, I wanted more time in the day. <laughs> and then also, and all of a sudden when it was where just a few days ago, I was like, man, I'm so privileged to be in this position. I am so happy to be here. Just let me work and do anything. All of a sudden, I'm having to ask myself to be very discerning, be able to try and look inside myself. Amongst all the yes and the we love you's right. and great and look to do this and we do this one do you do this one to do this and all the meeting all of that, I had to try to, you know, go inside myself and say, Well what is it you really wanna do? Which is a tough question to answer, still to this day. Yeah. You know? Right. I remember I said, you know what, I gotta the days are starting to feel like they're they're kinda overlapping. The events, the meetings, the places, the 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 this whole thing that it, it, i'm having a little trouble disseminating between events. I need a spot to press reset. So I just got a one-way ticket to a place in South America and put a backpack on and went away for 21 days just so I could let my memory catch yeah, up Yeah. so I could be a little objective so I could be in a place where nobody did know my name, where nobody did know that I just had a big opening movie that nobody did know I was an actor where I didn't either, where I'd just go, you know, with myself and my pen and my diary, which I always have on me and and, and sit there and let my memory catch up with me and let me go sort of sober up from all of it.
0: Right. Well, in that moment, which, you know, it's a, a lot of people who have kind of had a huge hit early in their career, and now they have to figure out what they do next. It can go very right, or it can go very wrong. The way that, that I've been able to kind of deduce what happened at that time, and please correct if any of these things are wrong, I read that you were seriously, being looked at, and I don't know how much you were interested in doing, but Titanic,
1: which would have been the year after? That, I think, and I, and I, <laughs> and I think, I don't know what Cameron said, something evidently, that got legs on it, but I went and auditioned with them. I wanted that. I auditioned with Kate Winslet, had a good audition, walked away from there pretty confident that I had it. I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. I never got offered that. And as I've said before, only, well, not even half jokingly, if it's true. If that was an offer and it didn't, and that didn't come to me. You got to go back and go, oh, I need to meet in an alley with that agent. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you, know I mean?
0: you, you think that doing it would have been the right move And now that you've seen how it all
1: played out? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, look, in hindsight, I, I sit there and say whatever the move would have been would have been the right move. Right, you make it work. You know what I mean? I mean, you, you, it, it would be just been a different way of getting, I don't know, a different way of getting to where I am or, or, or be another place. But I think I would still be doing what I'm doing. Did you turn
0: down my best friend's wedding? I don't think so. No, right. I don't that think was so. one that that was an L.A. Times article.
1: So what you did seem to do though was you decide- you know what, you know what the, I got I got one there's and I, I I'm happy to say yeah. I've been very fortunate yeah. over my career too things that I did turn down yeah most all of them I'm happy with that I, I'm happy with my choice I did turn down L.A. Confidential which part the guy I'm Pierce? trying to remember, I think it was the guy Pearsall yeah I think. I'm remember correctly. And that's a movie I really, really liked. Yeah, And that one sticks out to me as one that I'm like, Ooh, man, that would have, that would have been a really good one to be a part of.
0: But it's not like you instead stayed home and did nothing. You seem to have decided that it was, if this is your moment to do what you want to do, you want to work with top, top, top directors. directors. And so that meant Zemeckis for Contact, yep. which was 97, Spielberg yep. for Amistad, which was 97. Both though were essentially supporting parts. Yep, And so- there was a sense in those years immediately afterwards that maybe taking them had actually in some ways undercut your momentum. Do you think that was true?
1: So in the, if we were going to say like, let's how we're looking at this. Yeah. If we're saying in Matthew McConaughey star meter, right? <laughs> yes, it did. You know, but I chose those for very personal reasons. The believer and the scientist, with Jody Foster and Robert Zemeckis at the helm the, I'd written papers that were like uh, in college, one titled John Wayne Goes West, which was like right out of Palmer Joss as the character I played in that, right out of his mail. So I went in, I remember going in there, trying to get that part and bringing all these old papers and books I had written and handing them to Zemeckis and going over stuff with Jody and da, 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 da. I was like, I, I felt like I understood that guy inside and out. And was not concerned that it was the supporting role mm-hmm. or what have you. Again, directors, Amistad. Amistad, with Spielberg, we had talked about me doing something to save in private. Ryan, which it didn't end up doing. But this came along and I thought it was a really important story with a whole lot of purpose and something that needed to be told and a piece of history that I felt honored to be a part of, to share in a cinematic experience. I was not thinking, there were things, I remember there were certain things, and I'm not going to throw out a bunch of names, but there were lead roles in in major studio films that were good roles, Mm -hmm. but those two were very personal to me, and they happened to be supporting roles. Right.
0: After them, there were a lot of very good movies, including Ed TV, which I think was unbelievably present to be working with Ron Howard on that one Mm -hmm. about reality TV before it became what it is today. That's 99, 2000 was U571. And there were other things around there, but what I wonder is what gave birth to the beginning of the era of you being the go-to guy for rom-com, starting with The Wedding Planner, which was 2001, and then just to mention just the others so that we have the context of that phase, you had—so The Wedding Planner with J-Lo in 2001, had A Lose Guy in 10 Days with Kate Kate Hudson Hudson. in 2003— Failure to launch with Sarah Jessica Parker in 2006. Fools Gold again with Kate Hudson in 2008. And then the last of that phase was Ghosts of Girlfriends Pass with Jennifer Garner 2009. Yeah. How did that start?
1: Man, how did that start? Wedding Planner, Adam Shankman, everyone else was already on and cast and they needed the, the male lead. And I remember looking, I going, "Well, this is cute. This is fun. This feels like a Saturday." <laughs> and I was like, "It's okay to go do something that feels like a Saturday." <laughs> and I remember going, "This, this shouldn't be. You shouldn't make this hard." And I, I slowly learned that. But that was the reason I said, "I am going to go try something that's just light and buoyant like this." And went and did it. It's fun. It's great pay. Yeah, I bet. And I learned that you know what? This is not the type of movie to you know dig deep. <laughs> These yeah. are not the type of movies to be literal. And d- you don't this is not the type of movie to necessarily ask yourself, Makani, well, how would you handle that situation? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. There's a buoyancy to them. And if you hit too hard early, it's hard to recover. You kind of know the guy and the girl are going to get together at the end. And, and so I did that one. That one, I think, was a success. All of them, I think, did pretty well. Then How to Lose a Guy. Kate and had a great rapport. Donald Petrie. That was a lot of scripted, but it's still contextual improvisation on that. And that, that really, that worked and it was fun. Yeah, had, then we did fairy launch. And then I did and right around. So fairy failure launch, then fool's gold, which was like an action rom-com mm-hmm. and then goes to girlfriend's past. They were fun. And I was, I remember saying they were Saturday characters. Yeah. I kept going. I'm going to give myself another Saturday. You're right
0: now, before you talk about anything to do with what happened after that, can I just ask you, I mean, People think that it's just easy to do those, and they sort of tend to belittle them. I'll read you just an example, a quick quote from the New York Times. They said that of this group of rom-coms that they had, quote, barely distinguishable posters and plots, close quote, and that you essentially, quote, served a constant function in them, usually playing an upwardly mobile or urban professional He was a tanned emblem of a fantasy of modern masculinity, roguish but secretly sensitive, indecisive, but when push came to shove, true. His (laughs) eye-crinkling grins and caddish smirks were not just the film's principal weapons. Often they were their very reasons for being, close quote. But a lot of people went to see them and really enjoyed them and continue to enjoy them. Uh, And uh, Whoever said, that's a great review. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not, not everyone can, first of all, do that, even just what he's describing, but people you know, the fact that they there were five of them means that you were doing something that people liked. And I guess, I just wonder if you can speak to the idea that, because you've said since then that you prepare for the Dallas Buyers Clubs and White Boy Ricks. Actually, in some ways, not necessarily the
1: way you play the character, but the prep for the
0: character is not all that different.
1: No, it's I didn't, I, I don't work any harder now than I did then. I don't have just as many, you know, Scribbles and dibbles and options and, and things written on my scripts and, and pages tagged and feathered and bent and you know then and those rom-coms as I do with anything I do now. It's just a different kind of work and a different place with which to dig to dig in. I mean it challenged with those for me was to do kind of what you were just what that quote just said, is to not dig in, as I said earlier, to not go heavy realism for my own question, for my, my sense of realism. And yet, you know, still tell the story and the, you still have some, some movements. So again, it was, it was lessons in buoyancy. Again, my, the lady I worked with, I said, boy, you drop an anchor, you sink the ship. <laughs> and those like
0: a, an acting like partner a la- or something. La- or yeah. A pop- lady coach? I worked with uh, yeah.
1: Penny out for years. We said, you, can, you can't drop your anchor in those because you sink the ship. Right. And so, you know, a lot of work was how to not drop the anchor, but still have, as much dignity as possible going through it, you know? You have said,
0: quote, my lifestyle, living on the beach, running with my shirt off, doing romantic comedies. People were throwing that together and going, well, that's who McConaughey is. He's just rolling out of bed, getting dressed, and he goes and does it, close quote. Did that bother you the sense that the perception at that time, that it wasn't pushing yourself?
1: Well, I don't know if as much as it bothered me, but I did become conscious of it. And so... At that time, that lifestyle, me running around the beach with my shirt off, I was in the perception of the world I was living a romantic comedy. Yeah. So I had another there you said five romantic comedies? Yeah. I had the sixth one, which is me shirtless on the beach. Right. And so you were I was, a single guy, right? At that yeah. time. You could yeah. And so I was I was in the perception was I was I was living one. Right. Look, I and I've always to this day and even then loved to ask the question, wait, who's wagging who? And and when I, and I stop and Sit down with myself and go. Look, what are you, what are you doing? I, I'm not a big planner of going. Well, wait, let me make sure I'm perceived the right way. I much rather look in the mirror and go, what, what is it you're doing, and how, how are you handling yourself? How are you enjoy, how are you enjoying your life? Uh-huh. I was making them. They were fun. The pay was great. Uh-huh. I was looking forward to them. I enjoyed going to work. I was also living on a beach, going out. That a shirt on, just like I, always, I remember, right. just like I always did before, I was famous. Right, right. And, you know, look forward to doing them some more. <laughs> but I did become conscious. So I'm objective enough that I did go, oh. And then I remember it was, I think it was an Asian, I won't say his name. He said, no, I have a look. It's become a thing. He goes, there's like a two-page spread in People Magazine. It's like eight different shots of you and different that with that shirt on. <sighs> and so I remember checking out. I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, this has become a thing. And then that's when I went, okay, so me wanting to shift into doing other work, that's not going to be like, okay, I, I just want to go do some other work, other type of work now. I'm sort of monikered as this guy, that McConaughey, fun-loving, tan shirtless on the beach. He loves to do rom-coms. And I don't think the last two, like, well, the be Ghost Girlfriends and Fool's Gold, mm-hmm. they didn't do great. They did all right, right? I don't remember what they were. Not as well as the first few. No, so I'm thinking. I, f- I remember thinking, well, you know what? Maybe there's a little fatigue with that now as well, even in the box office. But I did get constant and go, okay. Well, that's become a thing. So I don't want to change anything, but I'm not going to feed it. I'm going to be more conscious that you're. I'm feeding it, and it's a new term I, I just learned. But even then, if I'd have known that, it was becoming clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It was that, just another shot of me on the beach shirt. It right. was another, there it is again. So it looked like that's what I was doing 24-7. I was like, okay, I'm not going to feed that. And it sounds, though, like simultaneously there was something
0: that was causing you to want to do other kinds of work. Yeah, well, what year are we in now? So Ghost of Girlfriends passed was 2009, and then there was yeah. this 18-month there period. We go. There we go. Well, in that period— We should uh-oh. say that's 18 months of deliberately
1: not— taking on any projects deliberately, not taking on another romantic comedy or action comedy. Okay. So deliberately not taking on any projects. Cause those are the only those ones were that were coming set, in anyway. Yeah, yeah, Okay. Yeah. So I remember I had a great call with my agent and I said, look, first, first I had a good talk with my now wife, who was my girlfriend. I was getting serious with at that time. And she was pregnant at that point too. Right. So you were having personal yeah, developments. So, so this time my life. Yeah is becoming very vital yeah. and exciting and like dreams are coming true in my life. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and things were new and scary and wow. And then I looked at my career and I was like, yeah, doesn't seem as exciting. Doesn't seem as fresh. Doesn't seem as, 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 as dangerous as, is. As, as, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm loving harder and laughing harder and crying harder in real life than I'm getting to, Doing my work. And I remember saying, Hey, well, if it's got to be one way or the other, McConaughey, at least it's that way. Right. Because the other way around, eh, now we got work to do yeah. on, the, on the real life side. And I said, Well, that's okay. I said, But let's take a pause here and see what we got to do to g- try and get some work that is going to rival a little bit the excitement I had in my life at that time. And so that meant I'm going to not do any of those, which I, I Camilla and I said, This could be dry for a while. <laughs> We don't know how long, but right. I said, okay. I call my man who handles my money. I said, how am I doing with my money? Cause I may not work. Well, he goes, you've handled your money. Well, you're doing fine. I said, okay. Then I call my agent and I remember, uh, Jim Toff. I said, like, I'm not going to do any more of those right now. I'm going to hold out for something that's just really going to come on and scare me. And he immediately goes, Okay. And I remember going, don't just throw okay at me that quick, man. I go, I've been bringing some nice cash right, in the right. agency for a while. So when you go in on that Monday morning meeting right. and you tell them that is not doing any more rom-coms, right. I don't think it's going to be an easy. Okay. And he goes, hey, no, I work for you.
0: Right, right, right.
1: And we never talked about it again. So he held the, he held, he was the gatekeeper who held it down. And I think I did. He called like twice over 18 months, about two Looking for projects. accept carve out. <laughs> well, the, 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 I think the offer There were two that came through that the offers were like, are you kidding me? (laughs) And he goes, I just got to share with you that this is the number they're throwing out. And I remember us laughing and going, and he was like, I know, I know the answer. Just had to share it because (laughs) that's pretty cool. And that was it. He kept the gate. And then all of a sudden, after about 18 months. I think me being away unbranded, I didn't rebrand, I unbranded. And I think all of a sudden me not being in rom-coms or being on the beach, seen on the beach with picture taken with me and the shirt off. I think it was like, well, where's McConaughey? And that 18 months had you also... Moved back to Texas. So, right. Okay. And... Shut down the your production company. Shut down company. a production company. Shut down my music label. Because it's all going to be about acting. Yeah. And I, well, I remember... I remember the phone ringing one day in my office and I saw it was, I was at my home office and I saw it was my office from here in Venice. And I went to pick up the phone and I paused. And I remember flipping my hand over and I going, why would you pause to pick up a phone call from your office where you're paying <laughs> salaries and you've got people that you like there and you've got a development company. I was like, Oh, well, that's your answer right there. Right. I'm shutting that down that was a just keep living just keep uh, living production right, yeah. right and had some really great people there working with me but i was like you know what i got to be more selfish here i feel like i'm kind of making i got five things going on on my desk every day and i feel like i'm making b's and b pluses in them i want to shut down the production company i want to get rid of the music label and i want to be a father and be an actor actor for hire right. i don't need to go be d- develop the stuff and then um, philanthropy and there we go and let's have those three main things on our desk and let's make A's in those three.
0: And to quote back to you another way that you put it, I believe, again, correct me if it's a misquote, but, quote, fuck the bucks, I'm going for the experience. Fuck the bucks, <laughs> I'm going for the experience. <laughs> yep. Okay, so the, the first new kinds of experiences, can we just quickly hit upon a few and just if you share what the appeal to you was in this way of, all right, worth coming back to do this? What made these? I, get, I think the first was the Lincoln lawyer. Yeah. And- In a way, it was a throwback to Time to Kill
1: right? I mean, you're a little bit. Yeah, so that came back around. And that was a script that had been around Hollywood for a while. And the script was never quite there. But I had seen and read that script years before. And now it was becoming something that was reality. I saw Brad Furman's first film, which really said to me, boy, he knows a sense of place. And he's shooting in parts of LA that this film takes place. He's going to have a sense of place. Then there was Bernie, 18
0: years after Days and Confused. Link later wants to. Reunite again. Well, we had done with you being a lawyer. Newton boys, Newton in 96. boys, right? Right, right. So in between, but here another. It seems that you've actually played probably lawyers more than any other. Yeah. So well, Bernie was prosecutor. Yeah. There
1: comes right, prosecutor. right, right. Yeah. And Linklat, look, Linklater and I. He's the probably the one guy that uh, if he calls me about something, I I I have a, well, I know I'm going to be able to create something. I I like creating. Yeah. With him, and he does a a really good job with me about. I like to push it and sometimes I'm, he'll, he'll like, so no, he even push it further and he will help me take a character just under the ceiling of caricature, right. but just to up, just to get up right there. Just, just not into caricature, but go ahead. And he loves funny. And so he and I always have a good time creating characters together. So that was, uh, again, like Lincoln lawyer, that was 2011.
0: Another 2011 is... Killer Joe, yep. this is William Friedkin, people will best know for The French Connection, The Exorcist. He calls up and he says he wants you to do this adaptation of a Tracy Letts script, and it wasn't an immediate. No,
1: mess. no, the, I remember reading the script, and, and it made me sick to my stomach, and I was like, ah. Oh. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't. I just thought it was. I thought it was gross, and I called that same lady that I work with, and she had read it at the same time, and she was howling with laughter. <laughs> she was like, "Oh no, no, Matthew, read it. Please just read it right. again." And this is one of those places where I I learned again that it matters for me when I read a script. That's why I don't always get a script, read it right away. I need to be in the right headspace. But that was someone who just goes, "No, hey, read this again." There's a music and a meter to Tracy Letts's writing that this is. Horrifically funny. It's it' it's, it's tragic stuff, but it can be really funny as yeah, well. Have, uh, and I read it. Lawman
0: and Hitman. Hit yeah. Yeah.
1: And yeah. I read it and all of a sudden it clicked and I got the, and I found the meter. I found the music to it. Right.
0: Next was Mud, which Jeff Nichols, who'd only made the one film before, was very good. Take Shelter, now comes to you and says, he's written a part for you with you in mind, essentially because he felt he had the sense that you liked the character that he'd written, the title character have an inherent likability, but also a worldview or personal philosophy of your own, all to your own, probably coming back to like the, just, you know, just keep living or all right. All right. You know, just here's a guy that is not a particularly well-known filmmaker at that time, but I guess was Jim Toth
1: involved here because it's you and Reese. Well, Jim was involved, but I remember he had come to me earlier with it and I'm like, nah, I'm not sure. And I read it. And then, and anyway, and then I, picked it back up again and then met with him. And once I met with him and saw the confidence he had with the material as the writer and that I hoped he would have as the director, I felt safe and good with the pedigree yeah. around me and I found an name with the character and, and we were off. Yeah. So it was a terrific one and sort of a Huck finn like
0: yeah. story. Which it was very was
1: great. much and i you know, as you know, I had places of that in my childhood. I had the for me, it was a 13-story treehouse that was about a mile away from the trailer home we were living in in the woods. And I had I had been out exploring one day and found this old lumber yard and got some wire cutters and cut the fence and would pull lumber out of there and take it into the woods next to where I built this treehouse. I built this 13-story treehouse. Wow, that's and, awesome.
0: Next up was a movie that a lot of people were kind of taken by surprise at, at how good it was. Cause there were assumptions going in, even though it was Soderbergh, it's a movie about yeah. male strippers. This is magic Mike. You're the stripper turned MC owner of the club, yeah. sort of like a gig young and they shoot horses. Don't they Or Joel gray and cabaret, the guy that's presiding over the, over the insanity. Capitalist. Um, w- yeah. And I wonder, you know, was that a tough call? Because again, on the surface, that, could well, be a risky. Here,
1: here's what that call was. And, they, and it wasn't really a tough call. One, it was Soderbergh. And, you know, he's got a, a, a style and he's going to take on that stuff. It's not going to be typical. And two, I was like, for the obvious reason you're going, I'm like, what, man, I don't want to, what a male stripper. What, that, in my mind, is exactly in the other. is like, that's exactly what you got to. You have to. Are you kidding me? Yes. This is like, em- embrace this and go because it was, so it was Carney, and I remember uh, first conversation I had with him when I was like, "Okay, okay, look, man, just tell me one thing. Give me a lot give me a diving board, sort of. when to go back to launchpad. Give me a diving board line just before I even even read this thing, you know, because uh, I'm really anticipating All right now. Nah, I can't wait to read. It. Give me one line." And he goes, "Well, you know, this Dallas, he uh, he's pretty connected to the UFOs, man. <laughs> <laughs> so." There's a director whose first words are basically saying the lid is off. Right, you go crazy. The lid is off. And then I read it, thought it was all that it was, and went and made it, and we dove in and, you know, hit the gym.
0: Well, I was going to say that. <laughs> I mean, the prep for that might have been a little different than usual. You got, you know, your your gym, your choreography, and I think you and
1: Channing Tatum, I, I remember hearing, took a trip down to one of these establishments in yeah. New Orleans. New Orleans, in which then... <laughs> Is, you know, and I'm going in certain trying to take some of this stuff seriously. And Channing's just reminded me no, dude, this is like, this world is carny. Mm-hmm. Come on, we're going to go out tonight. Watch you. <laughs> and, and we went and from watching the, the people in there to talking to the dancers who come right up before the show and they're like, you know, dress nice. And you they think they're, they're lawyer by day, dancer by yeah. night or whatever. <laughs> You're like, what? That guy's going to be the dance? Wait, oh, yeah, he he's got to put on his makeup. Oh, under right. all that, he's like kind of in shape. And they, oh, then the lighting, and then they do it, and they were just, they do it, and then like bam, five minutes after the dance, they come back over to the bar. Hi, how you doing? How <laughs> do you do the show? And you're just like, are you really straight facing me right, right. now after what you just did? <laughs> <laughs> and you had to, you realized, I guess, in the in the course of that, it's important to pick appropriate music for your yeah. dance. Yeah, well, you know, Stephen was open to two ideas from everybody, and I wasn't written to dance at the end. But Steven and Chan were like, but it'd be a shame if he didn't, it'd be a shame if Dallas didn't dance. So again, that little voice in my ear of that going, oh good. I don't have to went like, oh yes, you do. You're going to be in a male stripper movie. You better, you better go dance. So, and I remember seeing in a uh, rehearsal early on, everyone was doing hip hop and I saw Channing dance and I was like, oh shit. If I do a hip hop song, the best I can do is come in second place. <laughs> so I was jogging. I think it was on the set of killer jump jogging. or Maybe it was paperboy. I'm jogging one day and I'm like, I got to find my my music. I'd been going through all kinds of tunes. And all of a sudden I, 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 I hit some old school kiss and heard that calling Dr. Love. And I was like, that's it. That's <laughs> Dallas tune right there. That's and great. then worked on that and learned a few chords there and did the did the little faux play with the house coming out acting like it's going to be a sentimental love song <laughs> and then slam the guitar blow the fire right. on strip and you know, go, go do the thing
0: that no, was great yeah. and
1: what was your line about lawbreaking? breaking we well, are lawbreakers in here <laughs> was that
0: it <laughs> yeah it was great that was great so you mentioned the paperboy which is the other one so we've been through 2011 then 2012 mud magic mike and paperboy after a year of 2011 with Lincoln Lawyer, Bernie, and Killer Joe. So, Paperboy, first. T- is that your first movie that was premiered at Cannes? Just to make the point that it was another very well-received one. blood Obvious- Mud was there. That's right. right? But it might have been the same it year. It might have been the same year. I think you had two at yeah. Cannes at the same yeah. time. The one that obviously, I think, when people think back to what has been dubbed the McConaissance, which we're going through now, the one that I think first comes to mind is Dallas Buyers Club. And I just want to make the point to the listeners when we were talking before we get into the idea of this guy, Ron Woodruff, straight man diagnosed with AIDS, 1985 refuses to accept the death sentence sitting down. This is a movie that was made for $4.7 million, 27 days, one camera ends up $55 million worldwide gross, best picture Oscar nomination, two acting Oscar wins you and Leto and six total nominations. So the idea that it was in in any way, predetermined that this would be what it was. I mean, you guys, when you accepted the part it was nearing production, it wasn't even clear. You you did all this losing of weight, 47 yeah. pounds, which I'm curious to know how the hell that's possible. But after all that, it wasn't even clear that they were going to be able to go.
1: No, I got a call from Jean-Marc. It wasn't, it was maybe just outside of a week before we were supposed to start shooting. He was like, Mathieu, I, do not, I, I thought I would have this certain budget, but I found I I only have the 3.7 or whatever. And he goes, I don't know how I'm going to make the movie for this, but if you will be there, I will be there. I was like, well, I'm there. And I believe, I remember I I got on phone calls searching for money and backing and financing, and I believe there's a feed store in Texas that put up like the last million. And and I think what happened, I believe Jean-Marc within that week decided – Hey, we got to go one camera, no lights, no grip department, because we got to move fast. We got to shoot fast. I mean, I think he just adapted to that reality at the number that we did even end up with and said, we have to to lose all these things, these production, usually necessities, but he said, they'll have to look at those as luxuries and have to shoot one camera in a very short amount of time.
0: So what was it though, that made it worth it to you before that, in the five months before that to sign on and so commit to that part that you're going to totally change your body to the point of looking like you were dying. Well, it was a great role
1: and a great story. And I mean, you know, people had seen that script and I I don't know, you know, I had, I did, I did hang on to that script for a while because I know I wasn't the only one that wanted to do it. I know that before Jean-Marc came on, there were other directors and I won't say the names that were interested, but were not interested in doing it with me and then backed off the project. Here we go. Now we're talking about let's dive in. Let's really go be this man, do our best to portray this man. It was like over that five months, I could have worked another five months in preparing, whether it was research with the family and all kinds of stuff like that to find out. You got the diaries, right? Yeah. Well, that was my secret weapon is when his family gave me the diary, his diary. That's the kind of fun I was looking for. I mean, hard work. Yeah, but that's fun, hard work. I mean, that's like more, not only psychologically or, or spiritually, but physically to be have saying I've, I've got, I can dive in on all fronts in the process of getting ready for this. That's a maximum amount of fun as an actor, because you have to commit so wholeheartedly on all facets. And there was so much to commit to. So, look, how do we know? I, I mean, I like to say this, but it's true. Jean-Marc and I didn't flinch about saying we're going to do this. I remember... It was like, I think we shot it in the fall, coming up like shooting October in New Orleans. And I remember other scripts coming through my agent for the fall. And I said, well, why would I read that? I'm doing Dallas Buyers Club. And I heard this a few times. Well, you say you're, I know you say you're doing it, but it's not really real yet, McConaughey. And I'd just be like, yes, it is. That's when we're doing it. Well, there was some blind faith going into that. And I say we didn't flinch when someone said, look, it's not really happening Here's another movie. Just have a look at it. I mean, I wouldn't even read. I was like, there's no, qu- no, it is happening. And then once it did get
0: going, were you in the making of it convinced that it was going to be as good as it turned
1: out to be? Or was it something that you just can't tell in the moment? I mean, I, I've, I've, you look, you can get somewhat of a feel when you're making a movie if you feel like you're getting stuff. And I, I mean, and I've been wrong about that too. But I was, in a, I was in a position of such immersion that I was not being objective. I was not stepping outside Again, I was going for the experience, and I was having the experience. I was not stepping outside going, hmm, could this be? What is this going to be? You know. And then I saw what Jean-Marc did with it and did with what I know we had, but also what he did in places where I didn't, I didn't ever see the scenes playing out that way, you know, whether it's seeing Ron Woodruff, his head bowed, praying in front of a red-lit candle. You think, oh, my gosh, this is his coming to Jesus moment, he's gone to church. No, he's in a strip club. <laughs> and I mean, Things like there's a tone that Jean-Marc right. had, whether you see Ron Woodruff in the bathroom, having sex with a woman who's also had stage four HIV. Well, how do you make that digestible? Mm-hmm. And I remember Jean-Marc on that day going, I don't know what we talked about that scene. Cause we had, we had listened to the Ron Woodruff tapes. You would hear him having discussions with female voices in the background and the way they were talking and flirting, it was more than just friends. Right. 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 And so we found that's what, that's what was, was happening. People were, were, were hooking up. And, and so I would remember going to Jean-Marc, boy, if we, there's a way we can get that in there. And he was like, yeah, but how, I mean, I don't know how to, <laughs> well, there you go. One day he goes, we did do it. And if you watch that scene, it can handle it because he cuts back out to the people that work for me in my office And they're like looking over their shoulder and going, what's all the noise in the bathroom? So it just takes a little levity in what could, what on paper could be a very heavy, heavy, deep, hard, hard, hard to watch moment. Right. So that
0: culminated, of course, with a fall in which you won every award that exists, including the Oscar for best actor. And I wonder in the lead up to that is when I think we first really started hearing this idea that you had had some sort of rebirth. And again, come back to the word reconnaissance or whatever. And I just wonder what you made of that. And it didn't certainly didn't end with that because there's things that came after that are just as important. But I wonder, you know, a, the sense that people were noticing and classifying it in that way, but then b the fact that your peers chose to recognize you in that way. Is that something that matters to you?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Did it give me some validation? Sure. I mean, look, it was a kind of a role that, that, that didn't really ask permission if I pulled it off. they didn't ask permission to be kind of liked. It was kind of like, if it worked, you're going to go, oh, shit, wow. <laughs> I was watching Ron Woodruff, and that happened to be being played by Matthew McConaughey. Not, I'm not watching Matthew McConaughey or whatever ideas or investment I bring into when I see McConaughey on screen. It, wasn't, it was one of those things, and, and, and I felt that way in watching it. I was we're in the opening scene in the stall. Mm-hmm. When he's drinking and, and snorting go gang with the two women. I mean when I saw it and I'm, I try to be objective, but I mean when I saw it, I was like, oh geez, who is this guy? Ron Woodruff. I was on the I was on I was with the character all the way through. So it did get recognized. That did give me absolutely. I want I want my work to translate. I want it to be received and have an effect.
0: And was there ever uh, more in the zone or, or hotter by, you know, the way people use that term here moment than, you know, in the run up just before that, that Oscars in January of 2014 begins the rollout of something that you had begun shooting just six weeks after you finished making Dallas Buyers. So at the same time that you're getting lauded everywhere for Dallas Buyers, yeah, the world starts seeing True Detective, True Detective. Yeah. which again, this may blow people's mind, but when they went to you for that, First of all, TV was not an obvious right. S for film actors, but also they weren't coming to you about Rust. No, nope. they're coming to me about
1: Marty Hart. That Woody ended up playing because of you. Yeah, I mean they came to me for Marty Hart, which I read it and I was like, oh, I understand why they come to me for this. But after I read it, I was like, I remember telling my agent and then talking to the producers and said, look, I like this Marty Hart, one I really like story I go, but there's one guy I cannot wait to hear what comes out of his mouth, and that's rust and Cole. Right. And they're like, really? Huh. I was like, yeah, that's the guy. So they thankfully said, yes. Okay. We get you for Rust and go. I think I had heard something like Pizzolatto, saw Killer Joe and was like, oh, okay. I see a side of him, Connie. I didn't see before uh, or didn't, whatever. And so they came to me for Rust and go, and I was, and we were off. And then thankfully Woody took Marty Hart we were off. Yeah. I mean, it changed TV. I mean, t- look at I, limited series. Now I everyone they're everywhere. that's what people oh, want to do. Woody and I have a joke. How much credit we have for that statement. You said, I don't know, but we have a joke. It did. It was a time I must say, again, going for the experience, not the bucks is also the sort of, sort of, I'm not asking permission. The way I was feeling when I said, look, the material, I love the material. I'm not going to sit here and belabor the screen. And, my agent and I had that talk, and we were like, I was like, I'm not missing anything, am I? I go, this is great stuff, and I don't really have a problem with being on TV. He goes, man, me neither. Keep ch- chasing the material. I was like, that's there. We'll stick to that. So it took us about 12 seconds to make up
0: our mind uh, on that. Uh, no, that's one of the best. I think Wolf of Wall Street you started doing for Scorsese even before Dallas Buyers and True was on Tecca. the way down, yeah. And yeah, it's losing on the way weight, which kind, the of, weight. kind of worked out for a cokehead uh, yeah. financial yeah. guy. But the question about that movie, The Primal Grunt. That's actually not in the script, right? No, 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 no. no. That's something that.
1: Mm, 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 mm. That is, I'll find a beat for every character, or even different scenes. I have a different beat, right. and, and 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 like music and and, and is, is very important to me to to also loosen up my acting instrument. And so, yeah, I'll listen to music, but I'll also like to find a, a beat where I can. Have my, I'm I'm the instrument, you know, and whether that's a whistle, a ditty, a tune, a beating my chest, or what have you, a hum, I'll find it and it loosens up my acting instrument, gets my head out of the way, no, which, we so all, which we all, which we all want to do. So I was doing that before each take <laughs> to relax and to, with the rhythm for that scene for that character, right. and we did I think five six takes, we had it done moving on they started to pick up stuff and move and it was leonardo who raised his hand and goes hang on a second marty and he goes what's that thing you're doing before <laughs> and i told him when well, i just told you And he right. goes do that in the scene I was like, okay right. and so the next take i action and I'm, I'm doing it and then we go through the whole scene right and i don't know when and how if it, if i'm gonna bring it back but right. i finish my spiel of saying this is how the <laughs> business works blah, 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 blah. and i go got it and he goes got it so i was, so all of a sudden i was like oh well i'll start doing it again <laughs> and get him to do it with me, and it'll be sort of the fait accompli, the, right, the right. second, the bookend of like, now you got the message. Right. Now, now you now you can do it with me. Now you understood my spiel. And I loved your... What, oh. like, what, <laughs> All right. Next was
0: Interstellar with Nolan, who hired you because he loved Mud, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. First time you're playing a dad in a movie, and we had... Timothy Chalamet, who played your son on here last season when he was doing all the Call Me By Your Name stuff, and he pointed out something that I agree is, one, it seems to me like one of the most beautiful scenes you've ever done, and that's when your character is seeing the backlog of video messages of his kids essentially mm-hmm. growing up incrementally. How do you, even on a massive movie like that,
1: get to as emotional places you got to in that scene? Well, I remember this. We shot it first thing on a Monday morning. And I remember being kind of nervous about that because it was like, oh, geez, i got to have the whole weekend, and it's first thing up. And I was like, okay, I've learned now to go, oh, we'll use that, use that, that that'll be fresh. I remember going in, and it was one of those days where I'm not really looking too many people in the eye. I'm not looking anyone in the eye. You know, I've got to stay in my zone to be able to be receive. i got to stay relaxed, and i got to be able to receive. And I, I walked in, and I had down, and I had written on a piece of paper, I think, see you first close up. And I just, you know, came in and I, I I handed it to Christopher Nolan and didn't look him in the eye or anything. And then he was like, okay. And so quietly they started putting cameras up moving and then someone came up and they started to go roll the tape. They go well, here, we're gonna show you where the screen's gonna be. We're gonna roll the tape for rehearsal. And I went, mm-mm mm I was like, I want I need the first time I see it. The first time to be the time. You know, I mean I always I say this half heartedly and we actors know what I'm talking about. We know we can't improve a performance in take two or three, but everything after take one is acting. (laughs) (laughs) So you know what I mean? Actors understand what I mean out there. But so I just put myself in a play and then I'm watching it unfold in real time and I'm not trying to do anything. I just came in relaxed with the idea that my children missed their lives. They miss me. They're pissed at me. Oh my God. I do. And then everything just happened. And most of that what you're seeing there, I think, is that first take. It's amazing. The last pre-White Boy Rick
0: one that I'm gonna ask you about is Gold, Stephen Gayan. It's not a movie that got particularly widely seen because of the fact I think it was when the initial demise of the Weinstein company was happening. It didn't get a great release, but you've said it's a character that I think is among the ones that you're proudest of. Yeah. And just quick reminder. This one
1: you put on 45. Yeah, whatever pounds? I was. I got up to two, I think 217. Yeah. Wear,
0: wearing dentures, bald cap. I mean, it's like a, looking at somebody totally different. Why, yeah. though, you know, <laughs> the performance, though, why is that one that you're among the
1: proudest? Oh, of? he was a, such a, I know that consumer of life. <laughs> I got to witness that consumer of life, that abominable snowman. <laughs> Part of it was. My dad, or to go back to impressions and romanticized views, part of it was probably who I thought my dad was at certain times. Oh, absolutely a hustler. But some of the people he introduced me to when I was younger and I would go on the road with him and we'd go to collect money from people or go door-to-door sales, office-to-office sales. The characters, the insatiable appetites of these characters that I met by hook or by crook and my dad being one of them. I knew that guy. I knew Kenny Wells from the inside out. (laughs) Oh, it was great. I
0: hope people will now go and check it out. But all right. White Boy Rick is a movie that is coming for audiences very soon, but it's already been seen at film festivals. And people are very moved by the movie, but especially by your character, who is the patriarch of a family that is kind of torn apart as both uh, partly contributing to and partly victimized by the problems of 1980s, drug riddled inner city Detroit. What was it though for you in this case that drew you to the project and the character who on one level is a very moral
1: like family man and on the other hand is doing stuff that's destroying other families? Yeah, not an ideal father or father figure. It was the humanity of it. The fact that it was, you know, a true story. I thought the script was good enough and to be made into some sort of film, even if it was fiction, which it wasn't. Father to this son, something I'd never done before a role that did really scare me. I don't, I'm not that kind of dad in my real life. There wasn't much I was pulling off of my own life except the undying love that you have for your children and what you go and do, what you would do anything for them. But I'm happy to say, I believe I toe the line better than Rick Hershey Sr. <laughs> does in this film and in, in, in life. I'd wanted to work with Yann DeMange after 71. Mm -hmm. The humanity of a single-parent father, and I believe that's an epidemic we have, single-parent homes in America, one, stuck, paralyzed in the midst of poverty, living on hopes and dreams of the future and reciting nostalgias from the past, therefore stuck in the present, Mm -hmm. trying to buy time with currency he doesn't have. Living on the future, but it's coming too fast for him, and he thinks maybe he can catch up with it but he can't, you know, an optimism, all the want to, but none of the can do. This was for me, my sad country song of a role. I've never had this kind of role where the message and the messenger are becoming (laughs) at at, at obvious direct odds. And it doesn't mean his heart's not in the right place. He just couldn't do it. And Um, we should say the real Rick
0: Sr. has passed away, but you got to spend time with the real Rick Jr. Was there any
1: particularly valuable clue about, playing his father that he was able to give you? There wasn't enough information on Senior to chase down a biographical approach. So I didn't get many specifics on Rick Senior from his son. What I did get is, I guess, things that indirectly let me know about who his dad was in the sense of what family means to Rick Junior. And then that leads me into saying the next part is we cast this unknown, not even unknown, a non-actor, Richie Merritt, found after a two-year search in a street casting in a principal's office in baltimore <laughs> maryland all right so that was another very exciting reason for me to do this it's almost like a hyatt bar just yeah almost like a hyatt bar but at least yep. i had been to film school right you know in a hand model right <laughs> <laughs> you know he hadn't even done that No, no. so the idea of you know i'm supporting him i've never had a role that so much intertwined who i was needing to be off screen with a young man, Richie Merritt, who's on his first film, who knew the streets and came from broken family himself, who I was off screen with who I needed to be on screen. But there's also
0: a very admirable and rare humility in a A A-list big movie star being willing to play a supporting part, essentially, in a movie. You don't see that very often these days.
1: I mean, it was was a wonderful human part. It was a a real... Guy, I understood the heart of the guy. I wept for the guy. You know, he's born ill-equipped, ill-educated. Like I said, is he guilty? Is the messenger and the message were they at odds? Yes. Was he not a good father? A lot of times, yes. But hopefully, and what I read, what you can understand where he's coming from. And I'm saying you have to, you have to say, oh, it's okay. You know, because it's not okay. But he was a real guy. And I look immediately around me. I know parents that want to be best friends with their kids. And that's not the best recipe all the time for good parenting. But also just studying and researching single parents in poverty. Not many break the chain. And this is a story. This family does not break that chain either. So what's the takeaway you hope people have when they
0: leave this? I mean, it's interesting because he is the movie's called White Boy Rick because he's the one white member of his circle. And yet he is also now in the situation that a lot of other, primarily people of color, have found themselves in from the 80s where drug laws were harsher than murder laws mm-hmm. or, or drug penalties or yeah. other sentences. So is it something about the judicial system you hope people think about or, or something else as they come out of this?
1: Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's one of the things. I think there's, as, as I like to call it, parking lot talk after you leave the theater. There's objectively a lot of things that were also very important to me in the purpose of making the film and telling, help and tell a story like that. Like, is there to what extent is a coincidence that now he's going to be up for parole and has a hearing in December? Is a, is that part and parcel have how much or to little or none? The extent does that have to do with, Hey, we made a little Hollywood movie, shine a light on that. How many other thousands of cases just need a little light shine on to let somebody look, go look at the fine print. Mm-hmm. These are great questions. I'm not pretending to have the the answer, but they're great questions. The idea of a 17-year-old child getting life in prison. I mean, I was working Richie Merritt, the young non-actor, I was 17 years old. Mm-hmm. If he does something right now, I do not believe that he is the capacity for doing something and be fully responsible for having his life taken away from him for life. Mm-hmm. There's no rehabilitation in that. Another good question that we can apply to many cases in the judicial system. Poverty, the cyclical effects of poverty. How do you get out? Who breaks the chain? Everybody's on the hustle. Every young boy's gotta grow up to be a man quicker. Every young girl's gotta grow up to be a woman quicker. The stakes are high. It's survival, they don't have the luxury to sit back and be objective about, well, you know, well, morally, would this be the thing we should do? You can, there are ones that do it. I'm not saying you can't be done, and it can be done. This is a story about a family that does not do that. And there's also a lot of families out there, so I don't think the movie was set up to moralize about that nor do I think it portrays or invites you to say, well, it's more like, I think it raises questions that you can see all over, not only America, but, but, but the world, but specifically in poverty, in American single parent homes. And this is, it is a tragic story. Someone asked me, I think in Toronto, is it about redemption? And for me, I was like, well, you could say Dawn, the sister gets a bit of redemption. She comes clean, gets off air. but overall, man, everyone starts loses. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not for lack of try not for lack of love. We said it earlier when I said, would well, I have my family? But we knew we were loved. Well, this is also a story with a truth for a minor that love's not always enough. Right. Well, the last question is this,
0: I was going to end by asking you something that I've asked other guests on this, which is if there's someone else whose career you'd like the rest of yours to resemble. But I actually, then it occurred to me cause I was lucky enough to be in the audience the night you won your Oscar. You said in your speech that there are three things you need daily something to look up to, referencing God, something to look forward to, your family, and someone to chase. And then some people were, were perplexed because you said the person you're chasing is yourself in 10 years. Yeah. So I guess let's break off the question in that direction and just say, what do you hope Matthew McConaughey will look like in 10 years? And more immediately, how, having gone through everything up
1: to this point, how do you feel right now? I'm enjoying my career my work more than ever. And I think part of that's because I'm, I'm still learning about it. It's still, I still get butterflies on Monday morning before I go <laughs> to work. I probably, in many ways, battle complacency less because I've learned more ways to look at a role, more ways to look at a, the, the, the daily telling of the truth in the scene. So I feel like there's, I've got to, oh, there's always more to do. So I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I want to keep doing things that scare me. I want to keep saying, all right, I'm diving in the proverbial pool and the lights are off and the water's dark, but I don't know where I'm, how I'm going to get there, but I'm trusting that I'll come up on the other side. That's a, it's like pulling one off, you know, and taking (laughs) that adventure, that, getting that experience in the process of the telling of the story, the building, the construction, the architecture of a character in the context of a role in a film. That's, I love being that, that part, that piece. And I plan on continuing to. And so in 10 years, I hope I can look back and go, man, this last, you know, I'm 48, so we're coming into 50s. 40s have been wonderfully giving a lot back creatively to me in my spirit, my head, my heart, everywhere. Hopefully I'm getting that same reciprocity from the work and I'm choosing and what's given back to me for the next 10 years. And hopefully enough people still enjoy going to see me be part of telling a story. (laughs)
0: All right. Well, I sh- all right. All right. All right. Yeah, uh, th- thank you so much. I really appreciate. It. Thanks for going so in depth with us. My pleasure. Now, yeah. Can I now now it's can ginger eat- candy. Sun is down. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you. Uh-huh. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that, and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?